Well, good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be with you. Uh, thanks to the band for leading us in that time of praise. That song selection was so appropriate, I would describe it as perfect. Now, there are some uh, chapters in the Bible which make a preacher's eyes light up. The prospect of preaching them is delightful. But there are other chapters that cause the preacher to gulp. And Luke 21 is definitely a gulp chapter. Uh, but I, I, I've been praying as preparing for this that it would be of use, particularly to those of you who are anxious about the future. So let's just pray briefly, and then we'll start. Our Father in heaven, we pray for those in our gathering who are afraid or who are fearful of the future. And we pray that this text that we could see past its intimidating contours and find something of comfort and strength and something that will give us understanding in a world where the skies are growing dark. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here as a visitor, I hope you're very welcome and feel relaxed among us. The picture on the screen, uh, of course you will recognize, is of the Colosseum in Rome. If you've ever visited that place, you may have seen a cross in the Colosseum. It's situated in the position where the Roman emperors used to sit while they watched the cruel games organized for the entertainment of the Roman populace. The Colosseum was the scene of many martyrdom, martyrdoms of Christians. Christians were burned alive. Uh, they were torn apart by wild beasts while the audience ate their packed lunches. It's a huge elliptical structure capable of holding 65,000 people when it opened. There's one really curious aspect of the story of the Colosseum that I want to think about. I'm referring to how the building was funded. Where did the Emperor uh, Vespasian get the enormous wealth needed to build the Colosseum? To answer that question, I want to show you another famous monument in Rome. It's called the Arch of Titus. The photo shows a detailed carving that explains the background to the arch. Titus was the Emperor's son, and he went on to become an emperor himself, and he was given the great honor of a triumph march, a triumphal march through Rome because his armies had won a major battle. In AD 70, Titus' legions besieged and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. If you look closely at the carving, you can see the soldiers carrying off the precious gold furniture from the temple, including the seven-branched gold Minerva candlestick. It was that fabulous wealth plundered from the Temple of Jerusalem, which funded the construction of the Colosseum. This morning we're going to study Luke chapter 1, 21, if only. At one level, it is a story in which the Lord Jesus predicts the fall of Jerusalem. Some of you will know that Jerusalem's fall is a bloody and terrible story. It was perhaps the most challenging siege that Roman armies had undertaken since their destruction of Carthage 200 years earlier. Titus' legions approached Jerusalem from the north, and at that time, Jerusalem had three levels of defenses. A recent wall that Herod had built around the new city, as it was called, and then a second wall uh, around the older part of the city, and then, of course, in the core, there were the fortress walls that had been built around the temple complex itself. And despite the bravery of the defenders, the four Roman legions used their siege towers and their battering rams uh, to open up the three defenses. At one point, a centurion threw a firebomb into the temple itself, setting it on fire. The Jews inside the city suffered terribly. 
During the siege, they had been reduced to eating their pets and rodents. Some, it is reported, even had their own children. And when eventually the Romans broke through, the soldiers' rage knew no limits. Men, women, and children were slaughtered in the streets. It was carnage. The temple was destroyed. Even its massive stone construction was no match for the Roman machines of war. Now, about 40 years earlier, in about AD 33, the temple of Jerusalem was a peaceful and vibrant place. Every day, our text will tell us, Jesus Christ traveled in from the Mount of Olives and taught all day in the temple. The people were so eager to hear him that they crowded into the temple from early morning. So let's now read the chapter. We'll start at verse 5. The structure of our passage is shown on the screen. Luke chapter 21, starting at verse 5. This is the Word of God. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? Jesus replied, Watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed, even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars on the earth Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. 
When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. As I said a minute ago, at one level this text is about the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. But as we'll see later, it's actually about something much deeper and something much more relevant than a mere historical event. The question being raised is about God's judgments, judgments in history. How are we to understand them? It's not an academic question for any of us, especially the young adults in the room. It is quite possible that you or your children will live through the collapse of Western civilization. There is no doubt that the the, uh, skies are darkening. The signs of the times are ominous. A 500-year-old civilization built on Christian values has rejected its own foundation. The long march of neo-Marxist ideologies through our institutions is complete, so our laws, our politics, our culture are now shaped by anti-Christian ideas like critical theory and expressive individualism. No wonder even atheists like Douglas Murray are predicting the demise of the Western world. In Christian circles, when these things are discussed, perhaps the most common refrain that I hear from older believers is, Jim, do you not think that the Lord is about to come back? I'm sure you've heard those sorts of conversations in your home groups as we have grappled with the strange language found in the book of Revelation. Just think of John's terrifying vision of the four riders of the apocalypse. He rode upon a pale horse and hell followed There's an instinctive reaction among evangelicals of my age when the world looks dark and ominous to think that the skies will soon part and Christ will return. We long to escape these terrible events that will take place on what's called the Day of Wrath when God executes his final judgment on humanity. And I think this question of God executing judgment in history even applies at the level of individuals. I've listened to far too many young Christians who believe themselves to be under God's judgment Some disastrous thing has come into their lives, and their deepest instinct is to interpret that disaster as divine judgment. And so they're crushed by fear at the mercy of God's bolts of lightning. So the question of how God executes judgment in history is very relevant. Now, if we revert to the structure of Luke 21, you'll see that there is a wrong way to view God's judgments. But most of the material is de- next slide, uh, Ruben. But most of the material is dedicated to the right way to understand how God executes judgment. First, the Lord Jesus will talk to us about the fall of Jerusalem. That concrete example, that moment in history, will then be followed by a parable, a parable about a fig tree, and that will set out the underlying principle. So once we've understood how to approach impending judgments in history the Lord will teach us the right way to live in the light of future judgments. 
So let's get underway by examining the first three verses of our text, verses 5 through 7. Jesus and his disciples are sitting in the temple. Luke records the beauty of the scene, the carefully carved mass of stones, the beautiful artifacts and tapestries which wealthy patrons had gifted to the temple. And the Lord shocks everyone by looking at this apparently secure and beautiful stonework, and he says, the time will come when every one of these stones will be reduced to rubble. It's difficult for us to comprehend how deeply those words must have shocked his audience. This temple had first been built, the second temple, after the exile by men like Haggai and Zerubbabel. What a magnificent name. But then Herod used his enormous wealth uh, to extend and beautify the whole complex. For the Orthodox Jew, this place was the center of the universe. It was. It was where the true and living God deigned to meet with humanity. To understand the next bit of the conversation, we, we need to climb into the disciples' minds for a moment. You see, they knew their Old Testament scriptures very well. They'd been taught the prophecies of Isaiah and Joel and Daniel and, crucially, Zechariah. And all those prophets had predicted a moment when Jerusalem and its temple would be threatened. But at the last moment, the prophet said, God himself would intervene and save Jerusalem from destruction. I'll just read you a section from Zechariah chapter 12 to make my point. God is speaking. And he says, On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. Given that background, we shouldn't be surprised that the disciples conflated the predicted destruction of Jerusalem with the end of time, the end of history, the great day of God's wrath when he would come to deliver his people. But in verses 8 to 10, Jesus has to correct their misunderstanding. You're going to hear some really disturbing news, he says. Uh, I, I don't know what's going on. Uh, um, anyway, that's worse than a heckle, as you're trying to actually make sense of it, isn't it? So he says, you're going to hear some really disturbing news. There are going to be rebellions and uprisings. And then you'll hear the marching of soldiers in the distance. Stories of a coming war will start to fly around the marketplace. But do not assume, he says, that history is going to end. In verse 9, he says, these things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Now, that is such an important practical lesson for us today. It is, of course, possible that the Lord Jesus will return later today. But we should not assume that whenever society becomes chaotic, when fear of war starts to become real, that Christ is about to part the skies. That's the wrong way to react, Jesus says. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. We may be called, brothers and sisters, to live through times when nations rise up against other nations, times when there are earthquakes and famines and plagues in different parts of the world. Of course, as every reader of Revelation knows, the severity of those things will increase as the end of history draws near. And as we approach the climax of the whole human story, there will be fearful events in nature that humanity has never experienced before. But we should not assume Jesus says that every time a society collapses or a terrible earthquake hits, that the end of history has arrived. We may be called to live through these events. I suppose the best way to describe the wrong approach to God's judgments in history 
is to, is the wrong thing to do is to follow anyone who will offer you an escape. Beware of false messiahs, says Jesus, who will encourage you to join their doomsday cult. Church history is, of course, littered with such cults who have predicted the end of the world. In the 15th century, there, there were the Taborites who tried to establish the millennial reign of Christ on their own. Well, good luck to them. Uh, but more recently, the founders of the Jehovah's Witnesses declared that the end of the Gentile times talk about that in a moment, would occur in 1914. The members of that cult have had to do a lot of logical gymnastics to overcome the embarrassment of that failed prophecy. Okay, you might be thinking, I see the folly of the wrong way, but what's the right way? How do God's judgments work in history? And the bulk of Jesus' message is taken up with answering that question. First, I'm going to suggest in verses 12 through 28, he will take the predicted fall of Jerusalem as a case study, an example. And then in verses 29 through 33, he will set out the underlying principle using this parable. So let's turn our attention to verses 12 through 28. The first thing we notice, I suggest, is that they are chronological. We could easily draw a timeline that shows the four stages which the Lord lays out in this long historical process. First, there is the period from the Lord's ascension to AD 70. Then the second stage is the fall of Jerusalem. Following that, verse 24, we have what is called the time of the Gentiles. And then we have the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy uh, when the Messiah returns to rescue Jerusalem from its final climactic attack. So let's walk through those four stages. Verses 12 through 18 are a tragically accurate description of the witness of the early church from AD 33 to AD 70. Think of Peter's great speech on the day of Pentecost, and then right through to the final pleading arguments contained in the letter to the Hebrews. At immense cost to their own well-being, the early church showed courage and love by witnessing to the truth. They were hated, betrayed by their own family members sometimes, dragged before judicial and religious courts, put in prison, some were martyred. But we do well to note that the first stage in this process is what we might call the final witness of persecuted believers. Okay, that's stage one. Verses two, 20 to 23 describe the next stage, which is the moment when divine judgment actually falls on Jerusalem and its people. Now, notice what the Lord says here. He actually sounds very like Jeremiah when Jeremiah was advising the people just before Nebuchadnezzar's army surrounded Jerusalem 600 years earlier. Get out, he says. Don't be a diehard fool. Accept this moment as God's judgment on your society. Don't spend your time building up defenses around the city. Get your families to safety in the surrounding hills. Now, that is such a stern warning for what we today might call Christian nationalism. In both the U.S. and in Northern Ireland, there is a type of evangelical who has fused politics and religion together. And they've done so to such an extent that they sincerely believe that their job is to defend a so-called Christian country by whatever means necessary. For God in Ulster is a profane statement. Our job is to explain to our fellow citizens why our society is under God's judgment. We do that so that they will repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ. Those who devote all their energy to the maintenance of a sort of cultural Christianity 
are like the diehards in Jerusalem who refused to accept that their society was under God's judgment. The third stage is described in verse 24. Jesus says, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, Jerusalem as a city wasn't completely destroyed. The temple was, but the city wasn't. That's not what the Lord prophesies. In effect, he says, Jerusalem is going to become a Gentile city. It will run upon Gentile values. All its religious distinctiveness got trampled into the ground as a judgment, remember, for those Pharisees who said, we have no king but Caesar. All this judgment fell because of their rejection of their own Messiah. Just think of the terrible history packed into that single verse, verse 24. For 1,900 years, the Jewish people had no land to call their home. They were driven into ghettos all over the ancient world. Then came the rise of anti-Semitism in medieval Europe, the pogroms in Russia, driven out of England and France by cruel racist laws. And eventually, Jewish women and children herded into the gas chambers of Auschwitz. Six million of God's earthly people murdered. In 1948, the Jewish people once again had a land to call their own. But it will be premature to say that the time of Gentiles is over. We have to wait for the final stage, recorded in 25 through 28, for the time of the Gentiles to end. The story of Israel's rejection of their Messiah is desperately sad. But now we learn a crucial lesson about God's judgments in history. They bring unexpected blessing. Israel was cast aside for a time because of its rejection of Christ. But that judgment has allowed countless millions of Gentiles, including all of us, to come back into fellowship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the Lord makes no mention of that mystery in this sermon. Of course, it could only be revealed after Pentecost. The last stage of our four-step process in history is found in verses 25 through 28. It's a dramatic description of how Zechariah's prophecy will be fulfilled. There will come a time in the future, just before the end of history, when Jerusalem will once again be surrounded. The nations of the earth, led by that sinister figure called the Antichrist, will assemble to wage war on Jerusalem. The armies are ready. The gas ovens have been constructed once again. But this time, the skies will part. And the Son of Man returns. This time he isn't riding a little donkey as he descends down the Mount of Olives. This time he comes on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. And our Lord describes two reactions. The Gentile nations led by their Antichrist faint with terror. The very foundations of the world have been shaken. But those who long for Christ's return stand up and lift up their heads because their redemption is near. This is the moment that fulfills Zechariah's prophecy. If I continued to read on from chapter 12, you would have heard these words. God's still speaking, and he says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Now listen to this. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son the one they have pierced. At long last, after centuries of being set aside because of the rejection of the Messiah, God's earthly people will recognize Jesus Christ, the crucified one, and they will recognize him as their Messiah. He will rescue them and rebuild them as a people. Now, I'm acutely conscious that that was pretty dense theology. 
But if we take a step back for a moment and think of this case study, we learn some really practical lessons, I think. Think of our four stages. We begin with that final appeal, the witness of persecuted believers. Then comes God's judgment in history. We, we, we all have to live through judgments like that. And those who come after will be able to experience the unexpected blessings that flow from God's judgments in history. But we should never think that that process just goes on and on like a song on endless repeat. There will be a final judgment. One day evil will be put down. And those of us who know and love Jesus Christ need not shake in fear at that prospect. In fact, we can lift our heads because our final redemption is at hand. For reasons that will become clear, I want you to note a significant break in the text at the start of verse 29. Our Lord has finished his overview of the history of Jerusalem. The case study has been completed, if you like. And Luke now takes a deep breath and says, and then Jesus told them a parable. So we should not regard verses 29 through 33 as part of the description of, Jeremiah, of Jerusalem's future. We have started a new paragraph here. So Jesus tells a parable. Uh, the, the pictures on the screen might be helpful. Or they may be supremely unhelpful. I don't know. It's a simple parable about how the leaves on a tree start to bud and grow in the spring of each year. You can see that four-stage process on the screen. Now, the crucial point about this parable is that a tree buds in exactly the same way each year. So you can use that recurring pattern to decide, for example, when summer has started. It follows the same four-stage process year after year. So the parable is about a recurring pattern. We can remember what happened last year and the year before because we lived through those entire cycles. And now we can use that information to predict what's going to happen this year. Now, that is a very interesting idea. It's interesting when you set it against the case study of Jerusalem, because there we saw a recurring pattern. God's people were persecuted. Jerusalem was besieged. That happened in AD 70. But it will happen again, says Jesus, quoting Zechariah, sometime in the future. So the cycle of events that surround the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 will have the same pattern as the climactic attack on Jerusalem at the Battle of Armageddon. <coughs> a few centuries after the Roman legions destroyed Jerusalem, Rome itself was razed to the ground. The collapse of the Roman Empire was regarded by many, including the early church, as the end of the world. But the Christians kept their heads, probably because they had read this chapter. They didn't give in to fear. And out of that chaotic collapse, there arose a new society, once one forged from, with, from Christian values. Caesar's seat in the Colosseum got replaced by a cross. After the judgment, as it were, there was unexpected blessing. I'm suggesting, now we get practical, I'm suggesting that the Lord Jesus is teaching us here how to handle the future when it looks dark. Events have patterns, he is saying. Allow me to change the metaphor from a budding tree uh, to, to a bouncing uh, a tennis ball for reasons that I'm beginning to doubt myself. Consider the trajectory of a tennis ball when you bounce it along a floor. The amplitude gets smaller and smaller with each bounce, but the pattern followed, the shape of the bounce is identical. It follows a recurring pattern. Now, for this tennis ball analogy, I now need to make your heads melt, and I'm going to ask you to consider the pattern in reverse. 
Imagine a tennis ball that followed the same pattern each time that it bounced, but which increased in amplitude each time until on the last bounce, it soared through the ceiling of the church. I think that's how to look at history. We can use the past to know how each bounce will go, but we don't know if we're on the last bounce or not. Let me try and put that in slightly more dignified language. History, because it was orchestrated by God, contains recurring patterns. And that insight is a tremendous source of comfort to the people of God. We know from the past how this is going to turn out. If we're called to live through one of God's judgments in history, then we know the unexpected blessing will flow from that judgment. However, if we're called to to live through the end times, then we know that terrible though the events themselves will be, we will be rescued by God himself. So we can look into the future with our heads lifted up, as Jesus says, because we await our final redemption. Before we finish the study, let's examine perhaps the most controversial statement that Jesus ever made in the Gospels from an apologetic point of view. Critics of Christianity point at verse 32 and wag a triumphant finger. They quote Jesus' words, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Aha, they say. Jesus is a failed prophet. The disciples most certainly didn't live to see the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. The world didn't end. So Jesus made a false statement. Now, I hope the structure that I've been laboring to build is helpful here. We note once once again the big break at the start of verse 29. Jesus, by this point, is speaking to us about his principle that history can be viewed as a cycle, a cycle of repeated patterns. And it is in that context that he says to his disciples, your generation will get to see a complete cycle of history. You will see the process move from bud to leaf. The whole process will unfold in history before you die. You will get to see an entire bounce of the tennis ball. I'm probably quoting the message there. So the phrase, all these things, isn't referring to his earlier description of Zechariah's prophecy. He's speaking within the context of his parable, speaking about all the stages that make up the recurring pattern. Now, I already know I shall leave this lecture and feeling guilty for having dragged you through some really deep waters. So I'm going to close with some pastoral points gleaned from verses 34 to 36. The young adults in the room know very well that many of their peers suffer from anxiety. And I'll just take one example of anxiety, the thing called eco-anxiety. Many young people today are so afraid of climate change and the collapse of food chains that they are terrified of the future. They stare an apocalyptic nightmare in the face and find themselves paralyzed by fear. We thought earlier about the risk of following escapists, false messiahs who promise us an escape from the chaos and suffering that comes when divine judgment falls. But of course, there's another way to escape all that stuff, isn't there? I was reading last night about the final hours of Adolf Hitler before he committed suicide in his bunker in Berlin. His mistress, Eva Brown, got drunk on champagne, a tactic mentioned in our verses. She tried to encourage the guards to dance with her. That's another form of escapism, isn't it? Use alcohol to numb the senses, to block out the fear. In contrast, the Christian believer can stay alert and stand unafraid even when the skies grow dark. 
I hope when you've seen through all this intimidating material, you've found something of real pastoral significance for you. This is the antidote to anxiety, the antidote to being paralyzed by fear when you look into the future. God's judgment is already falling in our society. We may have to live through a time of awful chaos and suffering, but we've seen that tennis ball bounce before. We know that in God's universe, the pattern will never deviate. And at the level of our individual lives, remember that you will never experience the judgment of God in your life. Sometimes he may discipline us as a father disciplines his child. Other times he may call us to suffer on his behalf. But even in those cases, we know how the pattern goes. There may be sorrow at night, but there will be joy in the morning. Your story does not descend into chaos and meaningless suffering. Even in the darkest hour, you can lift up your head because your redemption is drawing near. Let's close in prayer and then we'll have a final hymn. Our Father in heaven, it is such a comfort to know that we are located within your grand story of salvation. A story which has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the end has already been written. And so we're not at the mercy of chaos. We don't stare into a future that is dark without hope. Because we know that there is meaning there. That it will form a part of your great and wise story. And so we pray for those in the room who are troubled by anxiety, who are afraid of the future. We thank you for this comforting truth that history has a pattern. And time and time again, that pattern has proven that God brings his people through trouble. There may be sorrow at night, but there will be joy in the morning. And we thank you, Father, that when you judge a society, that judgment, wise and just though it is in itself, very often brings unexpected blessing in other parts of the world. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us as we face a collapsing society, perhaps something like the fall of the Roman Empire. We pray that you will give Christians courage to look up and stand and await your redemption. Help us not to panic or to be paralyzed by fear or to use uh, 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 addictive substances to try and numb the pain. Help us to have such confidence in the repeated patterns of your story that we know how this will end. And finally, Father, we thank you that one day, whether it be short or long, the skies will part and Christ will return. We thank you for that hope that one day he will put evil down and we will live on the new earth and live in a way in a kingdom that is characterized by goodness and kindness and fairness. And so we thank you for the hope that this gives us. We ask that you part us in your fear and with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll hand back to Tony and the band. <laughs>